Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Last week, we covered the growth of a prisoner's hunger strike in Santa Rita Jail in California as it climbed into the hundreds. In a novel demonstration of solidarity, Oakland iWalk has published inspiring statements from a range of supporters. We're sharing some of these statements that have come from other prisoners. From jailhouse lawyers speak and incarcerated group of prisoners' rights advocates throughout the South, quote, from behind the walls inside maximum security on the behalf of jailhouse lawyers speak, we send our solidarity with clenched fists of resistance to the striking prisoners of Santa Rita Jail. It is important that outside support lift up these prisoners' voices to be heard and demand their concerns be addressed. Santa Rita is pushing slavery and denying human decency. These people in that jail are saying, hell no, no more exploitation. Stand with us as we stand with them." Unquote. From a Florida prison, Peace and solidarity, comrades, brothers and sisters. This is King of the Almighty Latin Kings and Queen Nation. We are standing with you. Your protest has helped me show the nations and organizations down here in Florida what standing in solidarity looks like, and I'm currently putting together our own protest. Thank you for the push and the sacrifice. Forever united, peace, kings and queens. From comrades locked up inside Angola, Louisiana, in the words of Frederick Douglass, quote, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will, unquote. Fight on, brothers and sisters, we stand with you. Quote, much love from the team at Dreaming Freedom Practicing Abolition, a network of grassroots abolitionist study groups inside the Pennsylvania prison system. We encourage you to keep up the fight. There's power in numbers and knowledge as well as in the will to push for changes in the prison system through direct protest action. We will spread your message far and wide, unquote. On October 23rd, human rights activists from around the world presented the United Nations with a petition from incarcerated organizers in South Carolina state prisons requesting urgent humanitarian intervention to protect the lives and safety of the prisoners. The petition asks for help addressing the human rights violations occurring at all level three prisons in the state. The petition requests that the UN send a special investigator to look into what it calls the torturous, cruel, and inhumane treatment of the prisoners. Prisoners at the Level 3 prisons have spent over two years confined to 9 by 11 foot cells for 20 to 24 hours a day without access to any rehabilitative or vocational programming or any movement around the compound. Prisoners report the withholding of water, 24-hour solitary confinement without reason, mold, contaminated water, spoiled food, filthy air rushing in the cells all day, no chair, table, radio, or television, and no access to legal documents or showers. Moreover, the South Carolina Department of Corrections covered the minute cell windows with metal plates, which prevent fresh air and natural light. This week, we share stories and reflections from Willis X, a former prisoner of 23 years who became an advocate for others still inside. He talks about his false conviction and eventually winning his freedom after being sentenced as a teenager. He lives in Michigan, where he's run a newsletter called The Lifers Report, featuring both updates from the inside and important coaching for prisoners seeking legal redress and improvements to their conditions. Based on his decades of experience, he generously shares advice and solace to those struggling against their cages. Here he is. 
When I went in prison in 1956 at age six, 17, I turned 17 in custody. I got locked up on the last day of my 16th birthday, April 14, 1956. They put me in juvenile overnight until I turned 17 the next day, then they put me in the county jail. I was charged with murdering a woman I've never even seen. Uh, her name was Mrs. Eleanor Bigelski. She was a wealthy woman in my neighborhood. Uh, I don't even know her, I don't think she knows me. Anyway, the police told me when I got locked up in the county jail, they got too many unsolved murders, they're gonna put one on me, so I had to pick the one that I wanted. I didn't pick none because I haven't done nothing. So he slapped me and I slapped him back and he knocked my front tooth out and I think I knocked one his out too. And uh, they didn't charge me. See, back in 1956, if any of you were alive or born during that period of time, Michigan was just like down south, if you know what I'm talking about. If you were black, your word didn't count for nothing because you were considered as nothing. Even if you told the truth, it was considered a lie. If the police officer told a lie, it was considered the truth. So my trial lasts a whole week and took 15 minutes to find me guilty of murder in the first degree. The judge was happy. My lawyer was happy. That's unusual, ain't it? And the jury was complimented. And everybody else was happy except me. They discounted all my witnesses who can verify where I was. I wasn't even in the state of Michigan during the time she was killed. She was killed October the 14th to 15th, 1955. During that period of time, I was in Jamaica visiting some friends. I got back to Michigan uh, around about November the 12th, November the 13th. 1956, they came straight to where I was working, called me by my name, and arrested me. I said, well, there were a lot of young white inmates. They were, they were inmates. I called them inmates. In my neighborhood, did you question any of them? He told me, I don't have to question them. I'm questioning you. I said, we question the wrong person. I don't know nothing. So I got locked up. I got found guilty of murder in the first degree. Just sent me to natural life without the possibility of parole. That didn't faze me one bit. Because in my mind, I didn't intend to do no life in prison. So as soon as I got out of quarantine, my first question was to the inmates, where is the law library? I exhausted every avenue I had on my appeals all the way up to the US, US Supreme Court turned down all the way. Now, then I said, all right, I got some of this in mind to do. Let me find some other kind of ways to work this system. So I got hired as a reporter for the prison newspaper called The Spectator. That paper had a circulation of 7,000 of deaths for the inmates. Because at the time, you had about 7,000 inmates. But there was an extra two or three hundred that I was sent out to legislators, people across the state. But Detroit News got a hold of one of my newsletters, and they read one of my articles, and they published my article in, in, in the, in the, in the uh, Detroit News. All right, my name got around the city of Detroit. I started getting all kinds of mail back in the prison. So 
I answered all my letters. Then I met a, a person, a friend named Zoltan Ferency from Michigan State University. He was one of my professors. He came to the prison along with Mark Maurer from the, uh, the Sentencing Project in Washington, D.C., but he was in Ann Arbor at that time with the American Friends Service Committee. He came to the prison. So in 1975, I started the Lifers Group. It's called the uh, SMP Lifers Group. The SMP means Southern Michigan Prison Lifers Group, the first one in the state of Michigan. By being invited all these people in, including judges, my name got to be known in a lot of places. So I got hired as a reporter for the Spectator, the prison newspaper, only one they had in Jackson. I also wrote articles in the Jackson Citizens Patriot, the Ann Arbor News, and the one that a friend of mine named John Sinclair, you probably heard of him, he had a newsletter out in Ann Arbor too. It's called the uh, paper, I've got the Ann Arbor Sun. So my name got around to a whole lot of places, but I couldn't do a lot of things in prison that I wanted to do because censorship from the administration, jealousy and envy, envy from some of the prisoners, so I had to restrict what I had to do. But in my mind, I, I was going to do it anyway when I got out. I was told by prison officials I'll never get out. I said, but that's what you say. You don't know what, what, what's on my mind. In 1978, I had a public hearing. The Deputy Attorney General was there, and one of the Pro Board members was there to conduct the hearing. That was 1978. All right, they asked me to uh, briefly explain the circumstances of my offense. What did I do? I said, I can't explain anything because I haven't done nothing. And all the prison officials who I've been telling over the years I was innocent, they, they was in the, the, the public hearing to make sure that I didn't contradict myself and admit to something I didn't do. I said, I haven't done nothing. So the Deputy Attorney General asked me, you mean to say that you're in prison serving a life sentence for something you didn't do, and the police officers are liars? I said, yes, sir. Every one of them are liars. I haven't done nothing. So I can't explain nothing because I haven't done nothing. He grabbed his head and rubbed it and looked at the, uh, the chairperson of, of, of the public hearing, the uh, parole board member. So they asked everybody in, in, in the room, it's about as many people now, maybe a few of us, does anyone oppose this man going out? No one said nothing. I was sitting next to the lady whose grandmother I was accused of killing. I helped her up the steps, bought a cup of coffee and everything. I didn't know who she was. She knew who I was. So she asked me, whose hearing are you here for? I said, my own. What did you do? I said, I haven't done nothing. I was accused of killing a lady back in 1955 named Eleanor Bigelski. That's my grandmother. I looked at her. I said, I didn't kill your grandmother. I don't even know her. She said, help on my shoulder. Don't, don't worry. So I go back, help upstairs. And they asked her, did she have anything to say? She said, let that man go. I don't believe that man killed my grandmother. Let that man go. So he asked the girls from Michigan State University who came there. There are three white girls who I've been corresponding with over the years. Asked these girls, do, do you know Mr. Harris? Yes, we do. Would you have a convicted murderer living next door to you? She surprised all of them. He doesn't have to live next door to me. He can live with me. Boy, everybody clapped and laughed, including the, the pro board chairperson. 
Tell the gentleman that dropped his head again. He couldn't believe what, what he was hearing. So my case went to the governor's office, Governor Milligan. When certain prison officials and certain snitch inmates found out about my public hearing, they put a charge on me of obtaining money from the state under false pretenses. All right, my case left the governor's office, went back to the parole board, pending the outcome of this uh, felony charge they put against me. If convicted, it would have been 10 more years that I had to do in prison. I wasn't about to do that. So I went downtown to Jackson County Circuit Court before Judge Gordon Britton. They have no evidence against me at all. My name was on the payroll. Somebody had forged uh, the supervisor's signature on it, and the state police gave me a handwriting test. I had to do about seven, eight pages <coughs> of handwriting, different things. He's trying to compare the letters and stuff like that. I passed all of them. It wasn't, wasn't me. So uh, the, the Jackson County prosecutor, he wanted to charge me anyway. So I had to go downtown to, to the circuit court, and uh, I think I went down there twice. The case was dismissed against me because my lawyer cross-examined those state prison officials so terrible and it make it look like uh, you were talking to an invalid. Correction officials were they were stupid, to say the least. Anyway, the, my case was dismissed as being malicious and frivolous. When the parole board found out about it, they sent my case back to the governor. The governor signed it, and I went home uh, June the 4th, 1980. I was supposed to go home in 1978. But it was swine kept me there two more years to 1980. So I went home June 4th, 1980. The Deputy Director of Corrections, Bob Brown Jr., Robert Brown Jr., he got me my first job. I was working in corrections, downtown Detroit. Uh, was that the state building down there? All right. They asked Bob Brown, they put it on, on what's called the, the loudspeaker, where everybody can hear it. I was in the room. My, potential supervisor there, and the, the deputy supervisor was there. They, they asked for Perry Johnson, who was not in office at the time. So they said, is there anyone there who can vouch for Mr. Harris? Bob Brown said, anybody who does not know Willie X. Harris doesn't know anything about corrections. Don't let that man leave your office. I got hired that same day, starting off with $25,000 a year back in 1980. All right, I kept that job until I transferred over Ten years later to work for the U.S. Marshal Services. Doing the same thing I did in Jackson when I first went there. Working in the bubble, fingerprinting inmates, taking pictures of them, assigning them numbers, and picking out the institution that they go to. All right, I kept that job until I, I, I retired in 2004. I had forgotten that I was 65 years old at that time. I went to I was 66. And just asked me, when am I going to retire? Uh, I said, I'll retire when I'm going to get 65. He said, you were 65 last year. I forgot all about it because I enjoyed what I was doing. When I got situated, I took the lifeless group from the prison and incorporated it in 1980 into the Michigan Lifeless Association, the purpose of which was to give inmates critical information that they need to help them get out of prison. Some inmates who didn't like me in the first place tried to discourage me from doing anything. They snitched on me, saw all kind of kites on me and everything else there. But that didn't bother me at all. When I incorporated, I was going to universities, schools, 
organizations, the, the Aquinas Club, uh, the Masonic temples, uh, churches, synagogues, a lot of other groups talk about lifers in prison. When I say lifers, I'm talking about parolable lifers, lifers without the possibility of parole, and the virtual lifers, those whose minimum sentence was 50 years or more. As you know, we had inmates who had 75 to 150 years outrageous sentence. We couldn't do it anyway if we wanted to, because you wouldn't live that long, not in a prison system there. I told all the public about it. But the nuclear dime leaders that we have at that time, often they want to do was have pancakes and breakfast, bacon, eggs, chitlins, and pizza, and all that stuff like that. Collecting money, but they have no interest in prisoners at all. They talked about prison reform, but they would just talk. So when I questioned them, what are you doing to help effectuate some changes in the prison system, it looked to me like I lost my mind. So I was asked to address the groups, which I did, about these lifers. Nobody wanted to hear anything about lifers. And even to the day, a lot of people don't want to hear about lifers. Even their relatives don't want to hear about lifers. And the reason they don't want to hear about them because some of the lifers that they claim put their families at risk. Some of them say that their, their homes were shot up and some of the people in the house were killed on account of what their son had done or what their husband had done or their boyfriend had done. I said, I can understand that too. I said, but that's not all lifers. That's just that one individual. Don't take that one, the one individual and judge the group. So she said, well, I don't want him back home living with me. If he get out, let him go somewhere else. Put him in another city. Well, I had no authority over that. That's up to the parole board to do. So I put out the newsletter, the Michigan Lifers Report. Some were allowed in prison. Other issues were rejected. Then I had another newsletter called Cure Lifelong Newsletter. It still goes into prison. It's not only in Michigan, it goes across the country, in Canada, and I sent two or three copies to Europe, to England over there, to some inmates over there. I don't know how they found out about it, but they wanted copies of it. In those newsletters, I put all the relevant information that they need about corrections, about the parole board, about commutation, because I've been through all of it. I got first-hand experience and knowledge of those that's areas I worked in. I worked as a psychiatric nurse. I, I worked, I worked uh, as a instructor in the school, I was a payroll clerk, I've done everything possible, a dental assistant and a region two clerk in the camp program, the Camp Layman in Grayley, Michigan. I got a personal contact with the parole board because I was a parole board's clerk in the camp program there. And I can ask them questions that inmates couldn't ask them because inmates didn't have the access to them that I had. I asked Bob Brown, uh, Donald Thurston, Howard Grossman, uh, A. Ross Pascoe, all the way back to the 50s. Some of the people, they had died out now, but those who came in the, pro, in the camp program, I could talk to them, ask them any kind of questions I want to ask them. And they gave me information. And when I, they gave me the inmate files to put into their, their camp files, I read some of that stuff. I even read some of the inmate files. Contrary to what the inmates tell us, the files say something different. And that's what the parole board goes by, what's in the file. If you say something that contradicts what they say, where did your information come from? Give me some documentation. 
it makes it, they don't have any. All right. They put in an application for a commutation sentence. Half the inmates don't know what commutation means, but they filed an application for a commutation sentence. So I put in the newsletter exactly what it means and the process you have to go through in order to get it. Some of the questions they ask inmates can't answer or they don't want to answer. The question is, briefly describe the circumstances surrounding your conviction. What did you do? They tell you what the rap party did, what Joe, Joe Blow, John Splitman Gates did. That's not what they ask you. What did you do? What part did you play? They don't answer that. They write four and five typewritten pages, single space, answer around the question, but they never answer the question. The next question is, I had in my newsletter, why are you requesting a commutation sentence? I saw Jesus. He told my heart this. Jesus ain't told him nothing. Ain't told a doggone thing because uh, he doesn't talk to your heart. If your heart got a mouth or ear, your heart can hear, but your heart don't have a mouth and doesn't have an ear. I told that in my newsletter. Uh, you had not talked to Jesus. What, what language did he speak to you in? How did his voice sound? What color was it? What did he tell you? It means don't want to ask that question either. So they ask you again, why are you requesting a commutation of sentence? In other words, why do you want your sentence reduced so you can be paroled? They have no, no, no sound reason. Where would you live and with whom would, 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 would you live? They can't say the family because the family don't want them anymore. They have no friends because they don't alienate all the friends. Where would you work? What type of work would you be doing? And so what the parole board looks for, verification. Because all the stuff that you put on the application for a commutation sentence, it goes to the Bureau of Field Services who validates or invalidate what you say on the application. If the parole board catch you with one lie, they assume the everything you said is a lie. If you tell the truth of what you did and the real, the real reason why you are requesting a parole or why you should have one, you're more likely to get favorable consideration. But when you get caught lying all the time, don't bad want to believe you. Plus, you're getting negative institutional reports. You got a prior criminal history, extensive juvenile records. You got uh, people from society writing letters that they don't want you out there because you endanger their children and the rest of the community out there. You're a threat to the public safety, you have stuff like that. And then you get a bad report from the court prosecutor's office, prosecuting attorney, all that goes against you. So I put all that in my newsletters. Inmates read it, they ask me, where did you get this information from? I said, I read all your records. You have to, I will go down to court and read your records. You have to tell me nothing. I read your pre-sentence investigation report. I went down in the basement of the court and read your whole file down there, and there's no verification, nothing you said on your application for commutation of sentence. They send me a Xerox copy of it. So I, I read it, and I verify it with, with the record, and there's no verification on there. Everything he said was a doggone lie. So I write him back and tell him what I found. I don't call him an outright liar. I say, well, your record contradicts what you said as being true. I couldn't find nothing in your record to verify anything that, that you have said. I put that in my newsletter, too. But don't use his name and put down in general, that the, record, that, the, that the court records don't agree with nothing you say. And if the court records don't agree with what you say and the probe has a copy of your court records, then they're not going to believe anything you say. So learn to tell the truth. What did you do?
That's why some of them been there 40 and 50 years in prison now. They won't tell the truth and they won't accept no responsibility for what they did. They have no remorse or empathy whatsoever. All that is in my newsletters, and I think I, I put a few out on the table out there uh, last night. Yeah, I don't know if, you, if anyone got a copy of it there. But it comes out every month, January through December, 12 issues. The inmates pay $10, civilians pay $15. All right, now, Kill Life Long, it's the same thing. Inmates pay $5, and civilians pay $15. Xerox costs money, postage costs money, and going out of the country costs money. In that newsletter, I put down information about lapers who had the sentence commuted, lapers who were paroled, lapers who died in prison that I know of, bills that are in the legislature affecting lapers, and I, I, I even asked inmates, lapers, to write articles for the newsletters. I even asked people out in society who got relatives in, in prison to write articles. They don't write. Half the inmates don't write. So if the inmates don't write and, and it's about them, the lifers, how, how can you help somebody who don't want to help themselves? You can't do it. So the, the newsletter is their avenue of expression. I asked them, how has a life sentence affected you? Physically, mentally, morally, socially, how does it affect your family, your children, if, if you have any? And it's, it's sad. These are lifers. Some of them have been there, they were there when I got there. Some of them, the same ones, there when I lived, and they're still there. The one that Richard Drobo, he's in the period, he got 55 years in. Uh, one named uh, Fitlow, William Hunt, 109-390. He's in Muskegon, he got 53 years in. He hasn't committed any crime. I read his PSI, the pre-sentence investigation report. His IQ is 71 in a sixth grade education. His brother committed a murder and put it on him and made him own up to it. Now he's doing mandatory life. His brother's still free. His brother doesn't correspond with him. Don't write him, visit him, send him nothing else. And his parents have died. Some of his other brothers and sisters have passed. He's still been Muskegon doing time over there. Nobody on our side to uh, represent his interests at all. I wrote three or four letters to the parole board in his behalf. Parole board said they have no interest in this case. I asked him, why don't you have any interest when the taxpayers pay all of you to have interest in all these inmates, regardless of how, how much time they're doing? The parole board don't ask you back. Not this current parole board. They don't answer you back at all. I talked to uh, the, uh, the uh, chairperson of the parole board named uh, Michael Egan, big heavyset dude. He said, we don't have to give inmates any answers. I said, what do you mean you have to give inmates any answers? Why you flop them? There's no rule, no administrative rules, no law still that we do. I said, ain't. It's okay. We tell them we have no interest because we have no interest. We say that the case has no merit because it has no merit. I said, what do you mean when you say it has no merit? They said they, they got his psychological evaluation, his medical evaluation, his prior criminal histories, his juvenile record, 
uh, his psych evaluation, his work report, and his institutional program and disciplinary reports. They had all that together and make a determination about his prognosis for success on parole or his failure to complete parole. If they're dissatisfied with the prognosis, he's not going anywhere. Yes. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.